Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi, Louise. Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be back again. We're recording together apart or alone together (laughs) to use some of the um, current lingo or what I call cove idiom. (laughs) Louise is in her study on Skype and I'm in mine. We're less than two miles away as the crow flies. I checked on my phone, Lou, and you are 1.7 miles away as the crow flies, I think. But we still feels you could be just about anywhere in the world. Yeah. And uh, we hope you can join us for a conversation about the books we've been reading, which all touch on scandals and secrets, which sort of go hand in hand, don't they, usually? A scandal's usually preceded by a, a secret. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Often, often the not telling of the secret creates the scandal. Yeah, yeah. And it's always the cover-up afterwards. <laughs> yes, it is. You don't get done for the deed, you get done yeah. for the cover-up. Yep. So, Lou, what's the first book you're going to talk about? Well, I'm going to talk about The Operator by Gretchen Berg, which is published by Headline Review. I'll hold it up to you. It's a rather gorgeous 1950s telephone on the front cover. Gretchen Berg is an American television writer and producer. I think she started out as a staff writer on the cult teenage hit Beverly Hills 90210, which is dating me a little. Yes, it's dating me. This is her debut novel. And it's absolutely perfect for an episode about scandals and secrets. The novel is set principally in the 1950s in the small town of Worcester, Ohio, which is a real place. And as you might imagine, in a small insular town in that era, particularly, although indeed in any era, gossip is the means by which the alleged secrets and scandals of Worcester are revealed. Yeah. The book is very loosely based on the life of Gretchen Berg's grandmother, although Berg says that most of the details have been greatly fictionalised. But I, I don't know. I think just knowing that her grandmother lived in that town, it adds an intimacy to the story. Mm. And it adds to the sense that we're being invited into the lives of a previous generation that isn't that far removed from us. I agree, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the novel is essentially Vivian's story. She's the central character, Vivian Dalton. She comes from one of Wooster's less well-off families. Her father is Paddy McGinty. His family, as you'd imagine, originally hailed from Ireland. She has two brothers and two sisters, Vera and Violet. Her father drinks, her mother is miserable, and it is Depression-era America in the 1930s when she's growing up in Worcester. And the Depression means that Vivian has to leave school early, which she resents deeply. But at age 17, she gets a job at Worcester's Telephone Exchange, which is the Ohio Bell Exchange. And this is something of a coup in her family. She's employed as an exchange operator. She's the middle child, so she's quite competitive, particularly with her eldest sister, Vera. And this job gives her a sense of responsibility in the family. She can help out with the bills. And she's really proud of the fact that she gets this job before her sisters. And she also gets married first, which is a big deal. Now, the exchange operators are, of course, the ones that receive the calls into the exchange. You know, a resident calls in, asks them to connect them to another number, which they do by pulling a switch and putting the cord in. And Gretchen Berg's grandmother was one of these operators. Oh, wow. So the story opens later in 1952 when Vivian is now a mother and a wife. She has a husband, Edward, and one daughter, Charlotte, who is 15. They're living in Worcester, and she is working again at the Bell Exchange. Now, 
as if everyone in a small town doesn't already know each other's business anyway, <laughs> the ladies who work at the Bell Exchange are in the habit of listening into the calls that they connect. Oh, I love it. And that means that they are privy to pretty much everything in the town. I mean, the idea of them eavesdropping, it's just incredible. It's like having a telephone intercept on your phone in 2020, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. and and you wonder how many members of the town sort of even imagined that every call they made was being listened into. Well, I suppose if you at least know that there's a possibility, you probably always have that at the back of your mind. Well, you see, I Or do think, you forget? Maybe you just forget. I think in, in the 1950s, you'd imagine that people weren't listening. You think everybody's doing the right thing and you just forget and chat away. Yeah, I think we'd have that view now. We'd be suspicious now if there was a True. telephone exchange. But I don't think in the 1950s. And look, let's be honest, not everything that's being said on there is particularly exciting anyway. Yes, true. <laughs> but Vivian boasts to her family that she knows people. She has a special and sharp understanding of people's personalities. But her daughter Charlotte says, well, that's only because you're always listening <laughs> in and eavesdropping on everybody in Worcester. But Vivian is convinced that she has this talent. She can second guess some of the information that the callers reveal and she thinks that she could give them some very good advice. What life advice? Yes, yes. And she's fond of saying to her sort of colleagues, you know, you don't need some fancy college degree or even a regular old high school diploma to know people. And, of course, as I said before, not much actually happens in Worcester. What the ladies hear is pretty mundane and consequently... Not much is worth listening to. But Vivian, who as a grown woman still has a really overactive imagination, she longs for some sort of excitement. And I'm just going to quickly read a little passage from the book. The calls that got the girls' hearts pounding and pulses racing were the ones for the hospital or the police station or the fire department. Vivian had the good sense to put those calls through immediately. Although, yes, she'd sometimes listen in, if only to make sure the call wasn't coming from her own house. What she'd really like to hear was something scandalous, something out of the ordinary, something like the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg business that Edward had told her about. Soviet spies. The intrigue was international news, but Vivian was mainly interested in the story because the spies had been a married couple. Now that was intrigue. And if she'd eavesdropped on a call between Julius and Ethel, you can bet your bottom dollar she'd have some advice to give them. Be careful what you wish for. And that's exactly what happens. Vivian listens into a conversation and a piece of gossip is revealed about her own family. And that shatters her world. And I imagine in the context of 2020, the consequences of the gossip may not have been considered so catastrophic. But in 1950, it concerns something that's, it's considered scandalous, but perhaps most important of all, it's information that Vivian did not know up to now. It's information that's been kept a secret from her. And I'm not going to give any more of that main storyline away, save to say that it turns out that Vivian's family is not the only family in Worcester to have some secrets. Yeah, of course. <laughs> there, are, there, yes. there are some really well-drawn characters in the book. I love her daughter, Charlotte. She's wiser than her mother, as you would expect, because she's received an education. One of the women in Worcester is called Betty Miller. She's very well-connected in the town. Her father is the mayor, and she has a very high opinion of herself and of the status of her family in Worcester. And I think Gretchen Berg has had a lot of fun with the character of Betty. She's larger than life. She's always socially engineering situations. She's organising lunches and fundraisers. She's always impeccably turned out. So she's a queen bee. She's the queen bee. And there is this lovely part of the book. Betty is sitting at church on a Sunday, the Forest Chapel Methodist Church. She has her gloves on. She's sitting in the front pew. She's listening to the pastor's sermon and she keeps repeating some sentences of the sermon out loud audibly when she thinks the words apply to some of the parishioners and she turns around and she looks at them as she repeats them. And you just get the sense in that scene that Betty is just becoming a little bit unhinged. There are times in the novel where 
I don't like Vivian, I have to say. She's sort of quite peevish She's and she's emotionally quite stunted at times. But then I kind of had to reflect that this was the 1950s. She's fairly uneducated and this really remains an issue for her. She hasn't done a great deal and you really get a sense in the book of the generation gap between herself and her daughter Charlotte. Charlotte reads widely and she uses words that her mother doesn't know. I think this would have been commonplace in the 50s and 60s. Mm. As women's roles and women's education changed. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the children in that era were often the first in their families who sought, you know, higher education. Of course, their parents had made it possible for them, but the parents wanted more for themselves, but they were left behind. And Vivian really yeah. feels like that character. But when Vivian hears words from Charlotte she doesn't know, she looks them up in her daughter's dictionary and she writes them down. It's quite tender, really. Aww. And then halfway through the book, we discover that Vivian has converted the attic in their house into a little office and Charlotte finds some poetry that her mother has written and it turns out that they are the poems of Gretchen Berg's grandmother. Wow. Uh, which is rather lovely. All in all, this is a really fun Fairly light read. The characters are really vividly drawn. And essentially, Gretchen Berg is sort of poking fun at 1950s America uh, and sort of the fishbowl insularity of a small town. It does feel like it's been written for the screen, which you would expect from a TV writer and producer. What is your scandalous book, Virginia? Well, the first one that I did was a book called No Small Shame by Christine Bell. And it was, uh, she's a Melbourne author and it was sent to me by Ventura Press. Uh, it's got the most beautiful cover. I'll just hold it up oh, for Louise wow. on yes. Skype. Is so that a bed head? Is that a bed head? Yes, it's a bed, an iron, old rusty iron bedstead and then beautiful floral wallpaper. Yeah, that's lovely. Behind it and through it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So in the opening chapters of this one, there are two families. It's in 1913, note the year, and they're planning on leaving a coal mining town in Scotland and emigrating to Australia. Mm. And both of the fathers are planning to work at a colliery in Wonthaggy in Victoria, which is right at the very bottom of Victoria to the south. And in one family, there's a young girl named Mary, and in the other, there's a young boy named Liam. And Liam's only plan is to get out of Scotland and to make sure he never has to go down a coal mine like his father. Yeah. War is looming and Liam thinks that if he can't get any other sort of work in Australia, then he'll enlist in the army, which, you know, imagine if that if that was your, you know, your fallback position is to go to war. Yeah. And that obviously was very common. He has very big dreams, but he'll do anything to avoid going down into the pits like his father and all the men in the wow, town. You, the fact that you would choose war over the pits just gives you an idea of how yep. terrible it was. I think one of the men throughout this book has a perpetual cough. Yeah. They come back and they're covered in dark coal. And, never, and, get, never get it out of their skin. And working in the dark and, and with the fear of cave-ins and things. Oh, my goodness. So Mary, of course, being a young girl in 1913, has no career ambitions and all she dreams for herself is marriage to Liam. She's in love with Liam. So the men in the family, including Liam, sail off to Australia first and then the women and the children follow in a separate boat. And the sea passage for the women is pretty horrendous and tragedy strikes a member of Liam's family before they even land in Australia. So eventually the two families, they're settled in Wonthaggy and Mary sees that terrible challenges have come over Liam. He's started drinking heavily. He's become a very angry young man. His opportunities are looking very limited and he's not her friend anymore. Oh. And the two families are living together in one of their relatives' house. So there's three families living in the one house. Some of them are out in a tent. They're poor. They've brought nothing with them. And eventually on a night when Liam is very inebriated, passions are unleashed and Mary discovers a short while later that she's pregnant. And this is all on the jacket of the book. I'm not sort of giving anything away that's not sort of part of the jacket cover. And I'm not going to say any more about what happens between Mary and Liam, but as you can imagine, there are secrets and scandals in this book. 
and a lot happens in this story. It's a really compelling read and I really wanted to find out what happened to Mary in particular because she's a really gutsy and resourceful young girl mm. and I became completely invested in her story. And like the book you mentioned, this is also based on Christine Bell's grandparents. Oh, okay. Which is rather charming, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think the actual story of what happened to Mary is, but certainly her grandparents came from the same Scottish town and ended up in Wonsaggy, which I gather a lot of coal miners did uh, who wanted to emigrate. And it really prompted me to reflect on what life was like for women in the early 1900s. You know, there were no real choices for them beyond marriage and often they were pressured to marry too young, well, what we would regard these days as way too young. So marriages were not always happy because they weren't making good choices and they weren't fulfilled personally. There are all sorts of reasons, I suppose, go into that. And then the First World War was such a dreadful time and so many soldiers came back from that war with shell shock or PTSD. Yeah. And also gas was used in that war which I understand later became a war crime, and I don't think it was used, or maybe it wasn't used as much in World War II, but it really ruined a lot of people's lungs, so they came back and they were in completely incapacitated. And not unlike people who came out of the mines as well. So Yeah, I know. You know it's a terrible irony, isn't it? But also the idea that you would be emigrating and had some expectation of this brand new yep. positive life. Hoping for something better, yeah. To find that they're almost worse off. It's awful. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, they were probably worse off because they didn't have the same network of people around them, I imagine. And then there was the Great Depression, which came along. I mean, so many out of work. Employment for women wasn't high on the list of society's priorities. Mm. In fact, it was quite contrary to that because they didn't want women to take men's jobs and then you know there was no reliable birth control and the societal and um, religious pressures were such that women were the ones scorned if an unwanted pregnancy happened so it was a rough time for women I mean it has been all along really when <laughs> when you really boil it down but that was a you know reading this really prompted me to think about that one of the other issues that was prevalent in Australia at the time, which was an issue for Mary in this book, is that Catholics and Protestants did not mix. Wow. And Australia was very much a part of the British Empire then, was made up largely of British, Scottish and Irish immigrants who brought all their sectarianism with them. So for a woman like Mary, it would be a huge scandal in the family if she married a Protestant and then she faced being cut off completely from her family. It was just society was pretty brutal to women when yeah, you look at it through the lens of the yeah. 21st century. And I hadn't thought of the Catholic-Protestant issue at all being transported out. Yeah, but they brought it with them. In some ways, no different. And it was all done by the churches to maintain the status quo and to exercise control. I can remember in my family there was that real divide between Catholic and Protestant and my grandfather was an Irish Catholic boy, but he married, my grandmother wasn't. And then one of my uncles did marry a Catholic. And even in my living memory, I can remember that there was a very much a them and us attitude. And it slowly petered out sort of across my, my life. But gosh, it's one of those things we sort of forget now because we, and we've had so much immigration, of course, that there's no longer that black and white divide. There's so many other divides. Maybe it loomed larger because there was a smaller number of them in yeah. Australia. Oh, and it, so it was, it was sort of more of a, you know, a microscope on them. Yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, for the most part, I really enjoyed this book, although I did feel that it could have had about 50 pages cut out of it. I'm a bit brutal like that. I, I sometimes think I would like to be an editor and I would just trim, trim, trim because it did drag a little bit towards the end. And I also struggled a little bit with the style of this one. It's written in this very colloquial internal dialogue. I like things to be a bit more polished and that's probably just my my preference. But it really did keep me turning the pages and it's a topic I'm always interested in reading. You know, women and life in the early 20th century always fascinates me. I think the early 1900s, more so than even earlier times in history, possibly because it's near enough, like you were saying with the 1950s, it's near enough to our own times to be a bit relatable, but far enough away to be quite different as well. And so in some ways I can picture a family 
50 or 80 or even 90 years ago as being not completely unlike our families today. But several hundred years ago takes a lot more imagination for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I'm reading a book that's set in Shakespearean times and it, I have to really go right into it and stay there because everything is different. It's like another planet. And then the reason we chose Secrets and Scandals is because we had planned to read In Love with George Eliot, a novel by yes. Kathy O'Shaughnessy, which we were going to read as a companion to Middlemarch. And so this is a really interesting look at the writing of Middlemarch, or partly that, from the outside, which I really enjoyed. So it's written as a fictionalised account of her long partnership with George Lewis, who was a married man, and also her later marriage to John Cross. So George Lewis's wife had left him for his best friend, Thornton. Thornton Hunt. Yeah, Hunt, that's it. Some of the, and one of their sons was named after Thornton Hunt, I presume, unless that was a particularly common name at the no, time. No, I think he was. I think he was. And because he had accepted the situation and allowed some of his wife's children by Thornton Hunt to carry his name, divorce apparently was not an option. He was said to have acquiesced in the adultery, so he wasn't able to obtain a divorce apparently. And he he supported them financially. And he supported them financially, I know. Mm. I mean, these days we wouldn't think anything of a long partnership like George Eliot had where they never married, but it was completely scandalous at the time and it was a bit of a secret as well in the beginning as, as these things often are. So the structure of this book is quite interesting. Cathy O'Shaughnessy has created two storylines. There's a modern-day story of an academic named Kate who is writing a novel about George Eliot and Kate's colleague Anne who is writing a non-fiction account of George Eliot from a feminist view. And Anne really dislikes George Eliot, Yes, I gather. And then there's the historical storyline, the old storyline, which is the more substantial part of the book, which is a fictionalised story about George Eliot using letters and reports from other people and other biographies, I presume. And I I wasn't sure, Lou, whether Kate in the modern day storyline is meant to be Cathy O'Shaughnessy. It's just such a similar name, isn't it? It is. I, you and I have debated this and I re-looked at it again last night. I'm utterly convinced that Cathy O'Shaughnessy is Kate because Kate is writing a fictional book based on the letters of Elliot Lewis and all of the people around them and that's exactly what Cathy O'Shaughnessy has done. Yes, and it's a very deliberate choice, isn't it, to choose a name so close to her own? I think it is, Yeah. And so I think the old story, the story about George Eliot, I think is meant to be what Kate is writing. Absolutely. And, th- and this is the book that Cathy O'Shaughnessy has herself written. Yes. So it's a story within a story within <laughs> yeah, a story. It's yeah. like one of those and look, perpetual mirrors. For me personally, that's the part of the book that just, to say it doesn't work is perhaps a bit strong. It's just the part of the book I didn't like because the modern story is very scant throughout this book. It, it pops up every now and then. It's not a regular. We, we don't hear from Kate and Anne and Anne's husband regularly in the book. It's just every now and then. And I just felt it was unnecessary, really. I mean, we already have this wonderful book that has taken a phenomenal amount of work piecing together a fictional book from all the letters. And I, for me, I just didn't need that modern overlay. Yeah, I would have probably trimmed that out. I'm pretty sure that it, it's done as a mirror to what went on in George Eliot's life. So yes. Kate has an affair with a married man whose own wife is having an affair and doesn't want him. Yes. And the man who his wife is having the affair with is well known to him. It's not his best friend, like in the case of George Lewis, but it's a very close work colleague who he then doesn't invite to conferences and things. So a very close connection there between the two men. But it's almost as if it was sort of being a bit too obvious for the reader because, like, we get it. We, yes. we sort of get the story. So I didn't need to be schooled in that as well. But, look, I mean, it's it's a very interesting way, but I think a little bit too complex for me. I was very happy with the story that she yeah. wrote of Marion Evans. It's quite an interesting account, I found. 
it sort of starts off with she's published Adam Bede under the name George Eliot and nobody knows that that is her that has written the book and she actively has to lie to people who start to suspect and say to her, did you write this book? And her friends and they mixed in literary circles. Um, she had been an editor and she'd written lots of articles for the Westminster Review. So people knew she was a writer. They were asking, oh, what are you working on at the moment? And then people said, I suspect, I think it might be Marion Evans who wrote this. And she was actively got to the point where she was having to lie and her publisher was writing to her saying, keep your secret, presumably because he knows that sales will fall off if a woman is, yes. is known to have written it. And then gradually more and more people are starting to work it out and then eventually she has to tell her, her friends, I've been lying to you all along. <laughs> it was quite interesting to me the reasons for the lie and there seemed to be a number of them. The one that you've mentioned, yes, that she was female and she didn't feel that she would be taken seriously and all the men in her life, all the writers, the Spencers, the Henry James, they're all telling her that. Do not tell anybody. Keep it a secret. And George Lewis, her partner, is saying the same thing at the time. But then there was also the other thing. She had been this editor or she was an editor at the Westminster Review and I think she wanted to keep her life as an editor and a critique of other people's work separate from her own writing, which I get. But then I think there was this deeply personal thing as well for her that it would shine a spotlight on her scandalous relationship with George Lewis. And so I think that was quite a big factor as well. I'm just surmising. But I think if it had been revealed, as we know it ultimately was, that she was the writer, people would have been thinking about her and George and I think she wanted, was tr still trying to keep that fairly low-key. Yes, yes, because they also didn't really want people to know all about the ins and outs of what was going on with George Lewis's wife and supporting all the family and he really wasn't open about that. I suppose he felt that that wasn't perhaps a dignified way to carry on. So I think you're right. I think all of those things probably contributed. They didn't want the spotlight on them at all. But of course, it, it didn't last long, did it really? It was only... Well, the spotlight brings me to that issue of fame, Lou, which is fascinating in this, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. I have thought quite a bit about this and it, it's taken me a while to grasp how precisely famous she was because I really hadn't appreciated. I mean, you and I had a discussion about this the other day and you mentioned that she couldn't go out when she was visiting Venice because she would be recognised. And that blew me away because, I, I mean, I knew she sold a lot of books. I knew she was well known in writers' circles, but I hadn't appreciated that her book Mill on the Floss, for example, was in virtually every household in Victorian England. So, I mean, I don't know any, I've got no details about the sales, but she clearly was really a household name. Yes, and I suppose we have to remember that this is a time when people did not have a phone in front of them. So every house, as you say, would have bought every book. Even though the population was smaller and all the rest of it, she seemed to make plenty of money from her books. Yeah. She managed to support another whole family and live a pretty comfortable life and travel and, and have these Sunday at-homes and mix with people. So there was no shortage of money and I don't think George Lewis was making very much money. So she must have been very well known. It's interesting because she wrote an essay, didn't she, when she was at Westminster Review, Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. And I think that's mentioned early on in the book. And she really didn't want there to be any thought that she was could be lumped in with that breed of female romance novelists. But I think maybe, I suppose after Adam Bede and a few people, I think it was Herbert Spencer who is attributed to being the person who started to let the secret, I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly what the book suggests. She obviously then grew confident that her writing was so highly acclaimed that it, it would be okay for people to find out that it was her. So there was obviously a confidence issue there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then, of course, their publishers sent them a snippet from the Times outing her. Yes, the editor, I think the editor of the Times was threatening to say, this is what we're going to publish. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, 
So she sort of started to realise, gee, I'm going to have to own up to all my friends so they don't hear about it from someone else. Because you can imagine you would be quite upset to find out that your close friend that you'd been confiding in and commenting. And, of course, there was another person who was reputed to have written Adam Bede, someone yes. called Liggett or some name like that, yes. and she did nothing to dissuade people about that. And neither did he. I think he was the town blacksmith or something. And, you know, he, people were exclaiming, but he doesn't even have a desk and he doesn't have this. And he How could he possibly? But they're all saying it's definitely Liggett. He's written it's, it. It was it's very funny, delightful wasn't it? to wonder how on earth that even started. But, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the, obviously the feminist element to this, which is so interesting, a little bit like, you know, in my No Small Shame book and the, and the book you read in the 1950s, just looking at these books just really hold a mirror up to the society at the time and, and what it was like to be a woman who perhaps was a bit different or took a different path, just so difficult. If you look at the characters in Middlemarch and Dorothea in particular, I mean, she has very deliberately drawn a character who really wants more from life. She wants to have a purpose. And then I suppose there has then been this sort of feminist disdain for ultimately the choices that Dorothea has made, which is to marry... Ladislav and have his children and support him rather than sort of having this life that we imagine she might have had for her it was sufficient purpose to have her children and to support his causes and I know there's been a lot of criticism of George Eliot for having written that ending for for Dorothea yes and not for her not choosing a more a life of the mind or yeah yes and and this does interest me because I think and I, I've, I've chatted to you about this recently I, I'm really interested in the choices that George Eliot ultimately made I mean she was clearly deeply in love with George Lewis and when he died she marries John Cross he's 20 years younger than her and I, I just get the sense that she desperately wanted to be married in a conventional, respectable way? Yes, she was probably tired of... Because she wasn't able to be received in society. She was really quite an outcast. I mean, they were able to have people to their home... But yes, women in society would not receive her and all that sort of nonsense. So for all the fame that she had from her writing and for all the sort of accolade for what extraordinary mind that she had, she still didn't feel accepted... Yeah, and she wasn't able to really have those great female friendships that I think she possibly sought because you can see in those friendships that they formed as a couple that with the Brays and the Congreves and so on. She was someone who was interested in people and studied people, which is reflected in the, the brilliant characters that she wrote. And so being outcast from society puts a dampener on your ability to look at people and study them and bring them into your books. And also that need is not fulfilled. The good thing about having read this, and I, I am really glad I've read it because it raised more questions for me than it answered. I'm so fascinated now, having sort of walked around and lived in George Eliot's shoes for a while, through this novel. We've done it for about four months. We've been living in Georgia. <laughs> we have. Uh, so now, you know, perhaps when I've had a, a sufficient little break, I do actually think I'd quite like to read that uh, Rebecca Mead, The Road to Middlemarch. I think that looks like that would be a really good one to read, a sort of a, a, st a more standard biography. Yeah. She seems to be the accepted expert on George Eliot, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. So I am very glad I've read it. That one was sent to us by Scribe, Scribe. Publications, and that's also a beautiful book. So, uh, yes, we have to find out a bit more about her now, I think, Lou. Yeah, absolutely, and we will no doubt later in the year choose another classic to delve into. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. So um, what was your other scandal book that you read? Yes, so I picked The Deceptions by Suzanne Leal, an Australian writer. This has been recent, very recently published by Alan and Unwin. This also is inspired very loosely by a true story. It's the story of two people, both originally from the former Czechoslovakia, 
Hannah on the one hand and Carl on the other. And we meet both of them during their younger past in 1943, during the German occupation, initially of the Sudetenland in 1939, and then the rest of Czechoslovakia. And then we also meet them in the present day. Both of them have survived the war. Hannah is in England and Carl is in Sydney, Australia. Carl, by the way, is a man. The chapters alternate between the perspective of different characters, but mostly Hannah and Carol, and it shifts between the war years and the present day, which I think is quite an ambitious task for a writer. So in 1943, Hannah is a young girl in Prague, and she's the adored only child of parents who had her later in life. And Hannah and her parents are Jewish. And this is a story that is all too familiar to, to many. They are sadly sent away from home, Theresienstadt, which was a Jewish ghetto in the East. And Carl, on the other hand, is from a family of Czech farmers in a village in East Bohemia. He's married a beautiful local girl, Irene, and he's become a gendarme. Gendarmes were not police or military. They were sort of, in Czechoslovakia, they were like an ancillary guard force. They were uniformed sort of mentors within their communities, really. Uh, they were very well respected. Um, so this was a position that brought his family prestige. And we become aware very early in the book, so I'm not giving anything away here, that Hannah and Carol meet while she is in the ghetto. She's working with others in the gardens and they're guarded not by the Nazis or Germans, but they're guarded by fellow Czechs and Carol is one of the guards. And although Theresienstadt is classified as a ghetto and is not strictly a prison camp, it may as well be because they are imprisoned and they endure terrible deprivation and hanging over their heads all the time is the threat that they might be transported away. Where to, they don't know. So Hannah makes a decision. She makes the determination, I guess, within the desperate context of the period of what she's prepared to do to survive. And so we follow the sort of unimaginable hardship and journey of Hannah and some of the female friends that she's made in the ghetto and what they had to endure to survive from July 1943 until they're liberated in 1945. Oh. And, of course, we know that Hannah ends up in England after the war. She marries, she has a child, but she decides to hide her past from her family. Carl and his wife, Irene, they've settled in Sydney and there is now a younger generation of their family there too. Carl is close to his daughter, Petra, and his granddaughter, Tessa, but Tessa has absolutely no idea of her grandparents' lives during the war. Oh, I can just imagine. And it turns out that several members of this family have something to hide. Duplicity is common to both generations, all generations. And the book ultimately presents some of the characters with a moral dilemma. And look, it's really difficult to talk about this book in an abstract because I, it, it would be very easy to give things away. But it really made me think, this book, about the sort of generation of people who had come from Europe and settled in Australia, England, Canada, America, you know, any of the New World places, and they'd endured a lot of trauma and they really wanted to start anew. You know, they didn't want to talk about it. They actually didn't have any knowledge of or confidence in psychological support. They wanted basically to bury their past, but... You know, you have to kind of marry that or, or compare that to secrets that can cause real harm. And there are some family secrets, we all know, that might be considered best left and buried by some family members, but not by others. Look, I've got to be honest, I didn't love everything about this book. I really struggle sometimes with books that constantly shift the narrative perspective unless there's a real sort of pattern to it. So I, I openly admit that that's my, my flaw. So this book opens with Hannah in the first person present narrative. She's talking to us. We're essentially in the room with her. So it's very immediate. It's got this very present perspective. And is that in both the case with both time periods? Is no. She... Ah, okay. Uh, so then for the other Hannah chapters... She does remain in the first person, but of course she's telling us her story of the past. 
So we're not really with her in the present. She's taking us through her past life. But then the chapters from the perspectives of other characters in the book, so Carell and his granddaughter Tessa and other characters, they're written in the third person. So they're not telling us their stories, the author oh, is. interesting. And I found that just too complicated for me. And I, I wonder if it was deliberate because she really wanted Hannah's story to be the most immediate and she'd obviously unquestionably suffered the most but the shifting narratives jarred for me I find that first person present narrative quite shouty but look please still read this book I'm really looking forward to having a discussion with someone about the ending of the book Uh, (laughs) but I can't do that today but it's still very much worth reading but yeah and I'd be interested to chat to people about that idea of perspectives it just was a little bit too complicated for me. Lou, this reminds me of when we did, I don't know if it was one of our practice podcasts, and I said to you, I really want to talk to someone about this book. And <laughs> you gave me so much heat. <laughs> you were going, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> Isn't and that I, the point of all the podcast? <laughs> it just its brought it back to me. It was so funny because I was, I was sort of sitting and saying, I just need to talk to someone about this book. <laughs> And I'm looking at you thinking, isn't that why we're here? What the heck? What are we but doing? Yeah, look, I, would love a, I would love a listener uh, who has read The Deceptions or reads The Deceptions <laughs> in the next few months to get in touch and chat to me about this book because uh, there's a few moral issues there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what about that ending? And mm, anyway, <laughs> which is your second book? My second book, I, I just recently finished reading it. It's A Good Neighbourhood by Therese and Fowler. I'm holding it up. It's sort of everywhere. It's got a, an oak leaf on the It's a beautiful cover, leaf. isn't it? I presume that's an oak leaf. I'm not very good on my botany. <laughs> and we don't really have oak trees in Australia, so or certainly not where I'm living, so I, I'm not sure. But Yeah, it looks like an oak leaf to me. Okay, yeah, well, you've lived in other places, so <laughs> no, no, I'll no, take but... your word for it. <laughs> and like my other book, this is a story of two families and the daughter of one family becoming involved with the son of the other family, which is often a common issue, I suppose. (laughs) Although this one is set in, say, let's just say early 2019 or 2018. Yes. So in this case, one family moves into an established neighbourhood in North Carolina and they've knocked down the old house on the block and they've knocked down all the trees and they've built a huge new ultra glamorous house and a pool and a decking area and it fills the entire block we can all picture those and the new family is white and a bit of a blended family there's a mother and a 17 year old daughter which is her daughter and her name is juniper and then there's a stepfather and then the mother and the stepfather of the elder daughter have a daughter from their own marriage a much younger daughter And then backing onto the big new house is the other family. And that's a widowed mother and her son, Xavier. And the mother is a university academic. She's much loved in the neighbourhood. She's the one who hosts all the book club evenings. And when somebody dies, she starts the bereavement committee. (laughs) Apparently that's a thing. And she organises everybody. And this family is black. Yeah, okay. And initially the families become friendly, but then a dispute arises because the building works on the big new property have effectively killed a huge oak tree on the black family's property. Mm. And once the mother notices that the tree is starting to die, she issues a writ and she sues, I don't know whether it's the local council or whoever gave planning permission, and she also joins the stepfather to the action because he's been sort of boasting about how he schmoozed his way and used his influence and they might have got through a few of the planning rules and ignored a few things. Oh, dear. And the problem is that Juniper and Xavier have fallen in love and no-one knows. It's a secret from both families. And I'm not going to reveal what happens next, but as with my other book, a lot happens. It's an interesting book. It's sort of, it's everywhere on Instagram. And I think it's essentially this book, I think it's intended to be about being black in America, particularly in the South today. But it is worth noting that the author is white Mm. and I haven't seen a single criticism 
of this book in the same way that we saw with American Dirt. I haven't searched for it, so there may well have been, but I've not seen any of the critics of American Dirt getting upset about cultural appropriation. Because this is really not just a neighbourly dispute, is it? No, and even though there are white people and she's writing about white people, I think her intention and the message of the book is certainly about what it is to be a young black woman in 2018, 2019 America in the South. So I do have a few criticisms of this book, although I had no trouble finishing it and it did keep me turning the pages, but I found it rather heavy-handed and didactic. So as I've done when I'm introducing it, every character is introduced in a way where we're explicitly told whether they're black or white. And there are a lot of very sort of studious paragraphs telling the reader about what it's like to be a young black male in America now or what it's like to be poor and from a trailer home and then marry a wealthy guy who struck it rich with a cleaning invention. Is the reader being schooled? I felt so. There's no subtlety. <laughs> I didn't think there was any subtlety. And there's no awareness of the reader's ability to see and understand all of these characters yes. for themselves. Which is quite irritating as a reader. I found it quite tiresome. So the conversations between the characters are full of all these explanations. It's a sort of like a version of mansplaining. <laughs> but it's sort of author-splaining race to the reader and it does become very annoying. No confidence in her readership. Maybe it's pitched at a very young audience. I don't, I don't know, but I certainly found that all very tiresome. So if I compare this book to The Nickel Boys, I'm reminded of the adage that authors should show and not tell. Yes, absolutely. And The Nickel Boys definitely shows all the issues that we're shown in this book, but this book tells the reader. That is an excellent point, Miss Virginia. Yeah. Uh, and there are also several scenes in this book that I just didn't buy, either because they weren't consistent with that character and the motivation of that character. So, for example, the black mother, the academic, who had been sort of a, a real people pleaser and a facilitator, issuing a writ against her neighbours and not telling them just the way it was done. I mean, that may well happen, but it just didn't quite ring true in the dialogue and the way it was sort of panned out. So I, I just didn't buy it. I didn't think that things would happen in quite that way. And the sad thing is that what ultimately happens in this book, which is very dramatic and shocking and tragic, could very easily happen in real life. I completely accept that. But the dialogue that led to those events wasn't really convincing to me. It meant that even when some very sad and terrible things happened, I wasn't very connected to the story yeah. and I just didn't really feel anything, which was a shame. Partly because this book relied very heavily on dialogue. It, was, it becomes a legal issue, almost like proofing a witness, you know, down to that level of detail of who said what. And so you have to get the dialogue absolutely right. And it was doable, but I just, it didn't work for me at all. So if you have read this book, I'd be very interested to hear what you thought of it and whether you think I'm being unduly critical or unfair, because I have quite a strong, had quite a strong reaction to it. Yeah, no, good. So what else have you been diving into recently, Lou? Um, well, I've got quite a few things, actually. I think I've come out of my COVID funk and I've sort of started scouring around and listening and watching quite a few more things. So I have been watching the series Mrs America on television with Kate Blanchett, Rose Byrne. I'm absolutely loving it. It's the most beautifully made series. It essentially is the sort of Phyllis Schlafly and Gloria Steinem 1970s era in America where there are various people trying to block or pass the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Oh, that sounds so good. Fascinating era and the most incredible cast is in it as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm only up to episode three, but really, really enjoying that. I've got a couple of podcasts to talk about. We always talk about conversations with Richard Feidler and Sarah Konoski, available on our ABC radio here, and it's also available as a podcast. I'm usually quite a few episodes behind with conversations, but a girlfriend rang me the other day and said, quick, Marion Keyes is being interviewed. Oh. Yeah, and, of course, we did Marion Keyes 
book Grown Ups in our Irish episode. With Vodka Gate, Vodka Sorbet Gate. Exactly, <laughs> Vodka Gate. That's exactly right. Well, she's done lots of interviews. She must have endless patience, actually, because she's an incredibly generous interviewee. I have not heard an interview where she doesn't sort of completely open up. Yep. She gives it her all, doesn't she? She really does. And look, this is a really, really good interview. I mean, I think Richard Feidler is one of our most accomplished interviewers in Australia. He kind of really shows a lot of respect to the process, doesn't he? he prepares a lot. Yes. And he draw- manages to draw out something from everyone that just is a bit special. Yeah. And this is no exception. I'll put the details in the show notes. It's a really excellent excellent interview. She talks a lot about family and relationships in this interview and I really enjoyed it. And then I've also been listening to a new podcast. It only started a few weeks ago. So there's only three, maybe four episodes so far. It's the documentary maker, Louis Theroux. Oh, yes. Grounded. Is this Grounded? Grounded? New podcast, Grounded. Have you been listening to that? No, but I've seen it. I thought last night I must download that one because, I mean, I just love the idea of calling it Grounded. Who would have thought? Yeah, exactly. Like we're all teenagers being sent to our room. And then also the other meaning of Grounded as well because he is a very grounded he really sort of is. person. So he's stuck at home like the rest of us and he's interviewing people via Zoom. So there's a lot of sort of little bit, have you, you know, have you turned record on and all this sort of stuff, which is fun. <laughs> Mute yourself. <laughs> yeah. I listened to his interview with Boy George, which was quite illuminating. And, you know, Louis's got such a beautiful voice and this sort of steady, gentle manner. And, you know, he asks such testing and quite confrontational questions sometimes, but he just draws it out of people. So the Boy George one I can really recommend. And the very first interview he did was with the British documentary maker John Ronson, who lives in the US. And John Ronson possibly isn't that well-known to people in Australia, but well-known to people in America. And he and uh, Louis Theroux do the same sort of work and they've had quite parallel lives. And they have a really interesting conversation. They talk a lot about the virus and I know we have all talked a lot about the virus and I don't want this to put you off listening because they really are talking more about the impact upon the sort of social fabric of communities and the cult of I. They also talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, They talk about arguments for and against free speech, particularly in the context of social media platforms at the moment. So it's a very interesting conversation. I can recommend that one. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention briefly, in episode 15, we were talking about some of the books we would choose to read in the pandemic. And I mentioned Gan Martel's Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. It's a huge favourite of mine. Well, after that episode aired, a friend referred me to a very interesting fact about Martel. From 2007 to 2011, he wrote a letter, one letter each fortnight, to the Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, and he enclosed a recommended book. So there were 101 letters with 101 books that he sent that to Stephen Harper. Yeah, it is really interesting. So he sent the actual physical book. He sent the actual physical book. I'm just going to read a very short passage of his argument. He said, if you want to lead effectively, you must read widely. My argument is that literature, as opposed to factual nonfiction, is an essential element to a deeply thinking, fully feeling mind in our complex 21st century world. A mind not informed by the thoughtful product that is the novel, the play, the poem, will be capable perhaps of administering the affairs of a people, maintaining the status quo, but not of truly leading that people. To lead effectively requires the capacity both to understand how things are and to dream how things might be, and nothing so displays that kind of understanding and dreaming as literature does. Wow. Yeah, just fabulous. So that was his pitch to the Canadian Prime Minister. And, you know, he, he went on to send a lot of books that you would imagine, you know, Shakespeare and Hemingway, and but there are lots of less obvious books on the list, and he sent... Uh, a lot of children's fiction, and there is now a book which I think was released in 2012, which is still available, which is 101 Letters to a Prime Minister, and so you can get a hold of that in your libraries probably. He also included some plays and poetry, so very interesting little project really. I'd love to know if Stephen Harper read them. (laughs) I was about to say, do we know what his reaction was? Because presumably after the first few, he didn't start sending them back. (laughs) 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and source the book about the books and the letters. Yeah. Because I think in each letter he also includes a persuasive piece as to why that book is important for the Prime Minister to read. Wow, that sounds so interesting. What was on the list? What were the 101 books for a start? Now, and I want to read all of the books on the list. <laughs> I want to read why Yann Martel says they are important to read. Yes. So I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. What have you been diving into, Virginia? A couple of things. Unlike you, I don't think I'm quite back to my normal self, but we're getting there. My reading certainly improved. And one thing I have been absolutely loving is Room Rater on Twitter. Wow. I'm not a big participant on Twitter. I've probably sent about two tweets in my life, but I do occasionally (laughs) flick on it because I do find it fascinating. And it it can be pretty awful. And the pylons on there can be pretty horrible. Yeah, terrible. But this is someone rating all the people on Zoom who appear on television and it's rating their backgrounds. (laughs) So the ones with the bookcase and and they identify what the bookcases are and whether they've moved a plant and and whether they've got horns sticking out of their head. And it's really funny and very much of our moment, really, of this moment (laughs) in time. So um, I really recommend (laughs) you have a look at that one because it's got funny, you know, extra points for this and taking points off colour-coded books and all sorts of fun (laughs) things. Yes, things that have quite obviously been staged as opposed to... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love and, that. And this, the person who does it obviously really hates one of the things which is quite popular now, which is to have all your red books together, all your blue books together. And a lot of people get very exercised about this on Instagram <laughs> yes. and write hate messages to people saying, how on earth can you ever find anything? It's more of a decor choice rather than a, rather than a reading choice. That's what people think. <laughs> and, of course, people can do what they want with their own bookshelves, but other people get very upset about it and... <laughs> They it, can, uh, Virginia, they can, a lot of but I still don't think they should be colour-coded. Oh, that's interesting. You might be one of the people who, <laughs> who would be sending the messages saying, put your books back into the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> Let's ne- not get started on the Dewey Decimal System again. <laughs> With that stupid cart and the yes. big books and the little books and the ultra-small. <laughs> I still don't understand how the New That's York Library finds That's a reference to episode five, folks, if ever you need to know. Go and have a listen. It's <laughs> the, the, Something's not right in the New York Public Library. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I don't understand. Hey, it's working for them, Virginia, okay? It's a pretty big institution. Well, the red books and the blue books are working. <laughs> but how can you remember the colour of a spider? Well, look, book? I know what colour my books are. Look, I don't do this with my books. I don't know why I'm defending it. <laughs> I do find it so funny because whenever you see someone posting a picture of a a coloured bookcase, you just know that if you look in the comments, there are going to be people. (laughs) And the other one is when you turn them around, another trend is to just show all the, have the spines against the wall. Well, that would just... Which provides a very neutral palette. And of course, people get very upset about that too. (laughs) How can you find anything? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I know that's a fat book or a thin book. I mean, it's just not going to work either. (laughs) People have obviously got a lot of time on their hands. Yes, I know. It's hilarious. So Room Rater, I think Room Rater would appeal to you, Lou. I I can see (laughs) you need to go and have a look. I'm hurrying us along so I can go and look at it right now, (laughs) just quietly. It's very good. The other thing that I will mention, which is a long-time love of mine, which is Gretchen Rubin. Oh, yes. I am a huge fan of her. I think Gretchen is probably my guru in life. I've been following her ever since she wrote The Happiness Project, which is many, many years ago, and I read her blog religiously. She now has a podcast with her sister called Happier. Her sister is a Hollywood screenwriter, and they have an excellent podcast, and they've just been fantastic during the pandemic. Gretchen lives in New York, so you can imagine, you know, she is literally housebound. And Liz is pretty much housebound too. I think she mentioned the other day that she's still got a tank full of petrol in her car from two months ago. Yeah. Which I found fascinating. Does her sister live in California? 
LA. LA, yeah. But there's a particularly good episode. It's a bonus episode they did called Coping with COVID-19. And I have listened to it a couple of times. And it's one of the things I love about Gretchen is whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or I've just got too much on or I'm everything's too much, I love going back to Gretchen because she is full of practical easy things that you can do immediately to make yourself feel happier. And she's an original thinker. She's come up with some amazing frameworks. She's got some books that are so clever, the tendencies that people have when meeting outer expectations, all sorts of really clever things. And this Coping with COVID-19 episode, they relate lots of things back to all of her different Um, methods that she has. So there's lots of great, easy advice if you're struggling with being in lockdown and all of those ramifications that flow from that. She has so many great tips and ideas and you come away feeling like this is doable, I can do this and this is achievable and she's just wonderful. So I would really recommend that. You recommended her to me a few years ago now and I have to admit I don't listen to it regularly. What I do is I dip into it and it's a real pick-me-up listening to her. As you say, she's so intelligent and it's a great podcast to just dip into and take a little morsel away on with your day. So yeah, it's a great, great call, Ginny. Well, we've had some lovely messages from listeners, Lou. Um, I was looking at all the places where we've had listeners in the world. We've had people listening to us in Morocco, Kenya, Spain and Switzerland. And we've also had some really gorgeous reviews, such kind reviews. And we love reading them, don't we, Lou? Mm, We do. (laughs) I always tell you about the the gorgeous ones. There was one the other day who said she wanted to move to Perth and be our friends. And I was thinking, yes, come to Perth and be our friend. (laughs) Yeah, we'd love you to come here and be our friend. So we're so grateful for all your reviews. And if you haven't already, we would love you to give us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice. And also to please mention our podcast to your friends because that really does help us find our audience. It sure does. That's it for us today. We hope you're going okay wherever you are in the world. We hope you have a good book to lose yourself in. And we'll be back soon with more bookish conversation. Bye. Thanks. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up.